He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, uh, He will speak and He will declare to you um, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. We're thankful that we could have uh, your word in front of us, that we could open it up and, and see these words. And Father, we're thankful for for what your word tells us about the Spirit, how through words your Spirit teaches, enlightens, illumines. And so we would pray that as we even look at the, some of the work of your Spirit, that your Spirit would be at work within us and among us this morning. Open our eyes, for we pray these things in Christ's name. We're, we're making our way through chapters 13 through 17 of John's gospel. This is the conversation that Jesus had with his closest followers on the, on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. And, and, and so we're, we're, getting, we're getting an inside look, if you would, to a very intimate and very personal and very important conversation that Jesus is having with his closest followers. He has said many things up to this point. He has said several things about the arrival of the Holy Spirit up to this point. And now this morning in the verses that we are looking at, we will see at least two more things that Jesus wants to, uh, to inform us about, about how the Spirit works in the life of Christ's people. And I want us to see the two points in our sermon this morning, the Spirit's work in bringing us to Christ and the Spirit's work in building us up in Christ. And I want us to see from this passage how really Jesus is helping us to see something of the two waves, if you would, of how the Spirit stirs and works in the heart of Christ's people. How he begins to work when we are not in relationship with Christ. The Spirit is at work bringing us to Christ. So from the outset of our journey with Christ, it is the Spirit that is prior 
But he not only is there at the outset, I want us to see something as well of the second wave that, that this passage speaks of. I want us to see something that, of how he is with us to the end, causing us to grow deeper and stronger and more intimate in our relationship with Christ. So those are the two points. First, Primarily in verses 8 through 11, I want us to notice three things about what the Spirit does to bring people to Christ. Although, I'll point out something interesting he says here, and it's hard for us to get our mind around that on an initial take. But verse 7, before we look at verse 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Uh, at first blush, he's like, really? I mean... How is that to their advantage? I mean, they were right there physically present with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, hanging out with him, observing him. I mean, it's just like, it just don't get no better than that, to be physically present with Jesus. And yet Jesus says, oh, yes, it does get better than that. Jesus will still be present with his people, but he will not be, in that sense, physically present. That doesn't make it any less real, but by the Spirit of Jesus, Jesus will now be indwelling His people so that wherever His people go, think about it, at this point, Jesus is limited to a particular geographical location. It can only be one place at a time. And now by the Spirit, Jesus will be everywhere with all of His people all the time. Jesus never does anything backwards. He never, he never walks back on saying, well, it used to be the good old days, and now it's, I mean, now it's the bad days because I'm out of here. No, no, Jesus will be present with his people. And here's some reasons why. He brings, the Spirit is who brings people to Jesus. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world. At first blush, you're like, wow, that's kind of a negative function, isn't it? Um, I mean, who wants to be that guy? Uh, You know, it's like, um, hey, Joe, what are you doing? Well, I'm just going to go out this week and see if I can convict the world of something. It's like, well, no one wants to be your friend, that's for sure. Um, And so while it it appears on the surface that this is negative. We have to remind ourselves, this is the, the, the Spirit's negative work here, if you would, is a means to an end and not an end in itself. And we'll see this progression, but I just give you an alert up front. You're like, oh boy, here we go. Uh, this, is, this is negative for a moment. This is negative for a glorious and wonderful purpose. If you think about it, one of the things that he's done up to this point is he's made a sharp contrast between the world and between his people. And and yet, if you're following the conversation, here's the problem. How do his people become his people when they start out in the world? It is the Spirit that does that. It is the Spirit of God that is at work in a process, if you would, of transference, transferring us out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, Paul would say, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And the first thing that the Spirit does in bringing us to Jesus is, if you would, 
he underscores and places it heavy upon us how desperately we need Jesus. So he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. The the world, that is, people without Jesus, cannot see rightly. They cannot understand correctly. They cannot love properly. People without Jesus, and I, I, don't, I don't say this to, we are bragging on Jesus this morning, not ourselves, but people without Jesus are labeled in scriptures as blind and darkened and hostile. And I would just remind us before we get a big head about ourselves, of such were all of us, save the grace of God and the kindness of the Spirit. The Spirit overcomes our deficiencies while we were in the world. The Spirit overcomes our blindness and our darkness and our hostility. And the Spirit does this by, first of all, convicting us. Convicting us of sin. I think it's important to understand what he means by convicting us of sin. It's not as though it is the Spirit doing a prosecutorial work. Whew, I was hard getting that word out. It's not the Spirit that that, that has to make the case as to why you and I should be condemned. That that the the, the Spirit doesn't do the work of a prosecutor uh, appearing before the judge, trying to make the case before the judge as to why people like us should be convicted of guilt. The Spirit does not do that kind of work. The Spirit doesn't need to do that kind of work. The Spirit doesn't have to make the case before the judge as to why people without Jesus need to be condemned because people without Jesus are already condemned. Now, what he's describing here is is not the objective case as to why you and I should be condemned. What he's he's talking about here is is how you and I would come to subjectively feel that, that the Spirit takes what is already the case, what is already true, that we are condemned in our sins before a holy God, that the Spirit takes that which is already true and the Spirit drives that point home to our hearts. What is already true, what is already the case, that that you and I this morning, whether we realize it or not, whether we feel it or not, you and I stand before a holy God in a perilous condition of trouble. Judgment and condemnation awaits all without Jesus. The Spirit presses that into our souls, the, the, the reality and the peril of our guilt invoking in us a self-consciousness, a self-conscious recognition that we are sinners before a holy God. And, and, and the trouble with us being sinners before a holy God is that leaves us justly damnable. That's serious. But I would remind us that this is 
this negative case that the Spirit is working into the hearts of, of God's people is, is an important means to an end. Because when the Spirit works that sort of conscious recognition of our guilt, then the Spirit provides other kindnesses as well. The Spirit also helps us to realize, I am in deep trouble, and what I need is mercy from God. Mercy from God. That's a wonderful recognition of reality. Because I think the second point, not only does it convict us concerning sin, but when he says there, he convicts us concerning righteousness. I I, I think in this context, what he means by that is he he helps to clarify. Because the moment that you and I think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble before a holy God, I'm going to have to like straighten up my act and fly right. I'm going to have to pull myself up by my own uh, moral bootstraps, and I'm going to have to like do better so that I can get a few favor points from God. But the next thing the Spirit does is He not only shows us our sin and the guilt of our sin, but He also kindly shows us that you and I don't have our own remedy to the problem that our sin leaves us in. In other words, the kind of righteousness that He's talking about here is is He helps us to understand that we don't have on our own, natively, innately, that we do not have the kind or the degree of righteousness to, to fix the remedy of our just condemnation. Religion has a long history of, of people on the one hand saying, you know, there's a, there's a divine being up there somewhere, and he's really big, and, and I don't measure up, and, and yet, and yet I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with my own scheme to bridge that gap. Even the Apostle Paul would talk about his life before he came to Christ, that, that, that he that he thought that he could obtain a kind of righteousness on his own that would win him favor before a holy God. Listen, people, people do reflect goodness. I mean, why wouldn't people reflect goodness? We're made in the image of a good God. People do do wonderful, helpful Good things. That makes sense because we're made in the image of a God who's just that way. And, and, and yet, it's what, that's not what we're disputing here. What we're saying is that, but can we on our own, can we muster up enough piety? Can we pull up from within ourselves enough virtue? Can, can, can we grab a hold of enough religiosity to maneuver our own way before God to earn his favor, to compensate for our sin. And the answer that the Spirit leaves us with is no way, Jose. We are functionally bankrupt in terms of righteousness before a holy God. And that's the kind of convicting the Spirit shuts us in in that sense. He says, 
you, you and I must, you, you and I are sinners before a holy God, and that, and we are, we are guilty of that. You and I do not have enough righteousness on our own to remedy that and to fix that. And, and then he convicts us concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I take that to mean what's about to happen over the next few hours. For when Jesus hangs on the cross, there is a finality of judgment at that moment. And the Spirit not only shows us our sin, the Spirit not only shows us our bankruptcy of righteousness, our spirit also, the Spirit also shows us our only solution. And that is what occurs historically when Jesus dies on the cross. For at the cross, he becomes the only salvation for mankind, but he also becomes the, the basis for which anybody outside of him stands under condemnation, including the ruler of this world, the evil one, Satan. You see, the cross and the Spirit causes us to see in technicolor that the cross is the decisive dividing line in all of history. For at the cross, those who believe in Jesus find their salvation, and at the cross, those who reject or ignore Jesus are confirmed even further in their damnation. I say all that to say that that's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit is at work in someone, bringing them to Christ. That's why he would say earlier in, in, uh, in verse um, chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And he does that by convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But, but also what we looked at briefly last week is verse 27 of chapter 15. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, so which one is it? Is the Spirit supposed to bear witness to, to the people in the world to bring them to Jesus? Or are we supposed to bear witness to the people in the world so that they might come to Jesus? Which one is it? Uh-huh. It's not an either-or proposition. The Spirit testifies of Jesus by convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we, too, as followers of Jesus, must testify of Jesus. That is, we must explain who Jesus is. We must explain what Jesus has done. We must explain the difference that Jesus makes in a heart and soul and life of all who trust in Jesus. And yet, as we are called to testify about Jesus, we do so as people who have no confidence in our own ability to persuade others, even as our aim is to persuade others. Now, go figure. Do you feel the tensions going on there? Now, does the Spirit testify, or are we supposed to testify? Are, are we supposed to persuade people, and are we incapable of persuading people? 
We, we see how, how it's conjoined together. The Spirit testifies from His angle, and we are to testify from our angle. We, with just feeble words that, 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 that we at times even mumble and fumble our way through, in our imperfect presentations of Jesus, can, can come alive by the Spirit of God. And that begs the question then, do we, do we really need to be a people who resort to silly stunts to see people one to Jesus? No. But neither can we be a people who are impervious and oblivious to seeing people come to Jesus. People need the truth, and they need you and I to tell them the truth as the Spirit is also at work in those conversations, bringing people by stirring in their hearts in ways that you and I cannot do. Second point I want to make, not only does the Spirit bring us to Christ, but the Spirit then builds us up in Christ. Verse 12 would be the where we would get started on this brief conversation. Jesus says, I still have many more things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. Isn't that interesting? It's like, uh, Jesus, no, really, take all the time you need. Your Lord, you need longer, take longer. Jesus, for whatever reason... The hour is late. Their hearts are troubled. We've already seen that from the context here. And basically, one way or the other, he's saying, you, you, you can't soak up any more than you've already soaked up. We're, we're about done with this conversation. But, but it, it, it's a segue that introduces us to then, okay, so now that Jesus is leaving, he, he's telling, tell, I, I got more to say, but we're done for now. But, but you cannot bear them. But verse 13, when the spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Three quick things here. When the spirit of truth comes, interesting, he calls him the spirit of truth here because I think he's underlying the fact that the spirit is incapable of anything but the truth. The spirit consists of the truth and the the spirit communicates the truth. And specifically, the spirit will, will consist of and communicate the truth as it is in Jesus. Now, earlier in chapter 14, uh, Jesus talking about the Spirit says in 14.26, He will bring to remembrance all the things that I've taught to you. So one of the ways that the Spirit is at work building us up in Christ is the Spirit reminds us of the things that Jesus has already said up to this point in history with His disciples. So he, he, will, he will aid in their recall. And I think the Spirit works that way with us. The Spirit is, is not so much on a quest to sh- show us um, uh, new things that Jesus never thought of. The Spirit is at work reminding us of the things that Jesus said. But I think there's another way to think that, at least from the historic vantage of what he's saying here. The, so the Spirit will remind his people of the things that Jesus said previously. But I think we could also build upon that, at least in this moment here, that the Spirit will if you would complete the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will tell them 
the rest of the things that Jesus didn't get around to telling them right here. Now, that's important to realize because you're like, oh, man, Jesus says, i got more things to tell you, uh, but we're out of time. And we're like, oh, so I'm stuck. I'm never going to find that stuff out. No, no, that's not the way to look at this. We do get to find that stuff out. Because how the Spirit revealed that to the disciples of Jesus who became the apostles of Jesus is that we now have a completed book, of our, a, complete, a completed Bible. And, and, and so post the Gospels, we have, if you would, a faithful, pure record of what God wanted us to know that, that Jesus didn't tell us at that moment prior to the cross He now laid it out for us by the Spirit through the apostles. And so we do have the final story, the rest of the word. We don't don't have to look for a new word from the Spirit or a a new special book that comes down from an angel or or, or whatever. Because the Spirit is committed, the second thing, the Spirit is committed to only tell us whether it's through the apostles now or at work reminding us today, the Spirit is committed to only tell us what Jesus wants the Spirit to tell us. Just like throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus only told us what His Father wanted us to know. So there's, a, there's this wonderful divine harmony between the members of the triune Godhead. Uh, these are not three wildcats just out there doing their own thing. These, these, are, these are three members that, that have been eternally in love with each other and devoted to each other and working for the good of each other who are now still doing much the same but now doing it in a way that accentuates the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And he does that. Our passage tells us a third thing, verse 14, so that, speaking of the Spirit, he will glorify me. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. I take that to mean that when you and I are built up further in Christ by the illuminating work of the Spirit as the Spirit takes the rest of the Scriptures and unpacks how they belong and relate and point to Jesus, that that there's something that begins ever increasingly percolating in our hearts when we more clearly see Jesus as glorious. What do we do with that? When you and I see Jesus as glorious, our response is not, meh. When we see Jesus as glorious because the Spirit shows us that through the Word, He is so beautiful. He is so majestic. He is he's so wonderful. I, th- I thought I knew all of that yesterday, but, but now I realized that yesterday I didn't know the half of it. 
He's more beautiful, more majestic, more glorious, more powerful, more sufficient than I ever imagined him to be yesterday. And I thought I knew it all yesterday. No, the Spirit continues to show us from the Word how glorious Jesus is. And of course, Paul would take that notion in 2 Corinthians 14, that as we are beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus, we are being changed into that glory from one degree of glory unto another. Or put it this way. First things first. Jesus didn't come. And we've got to understand this, church. We've got to understand this as a North American sub-Christian culture. Jesus didn't come primarily to solve the economic, the political, and the social problems of the world. He came to pardon us of our sins. But hang on. And in doing this glorious, huge, infinite thing, he brings us into relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as he brings us into relationship with him, he begins transforming us. And the change begins. The Spirit shows Jesus to be enough. And when that settles in our hearts, then our hearts begin to be unsettled in a good way because our hearts begin to be, to be changed. May we be a Spirit-drenched people who belong to, the G- who belong to Jesus. Now, one last thing. He he talks here in this passage about when the Spirit comes. He's in this sense that he's describing. He's not here yet. And I I want you to just consider for a moment before we're done a, a before and after shot. Jesus has walked them through these instructions that we'll complete in chapter 17. And, and then he will be arrested. And then he will be brought up on bogus charges. Eventually he'll be murdered. What became of his disciples, the guys hearing this conversation? What became of them? In Mark 14, it tells us, and when Jesus was arrested, every one of them deserted him. They ran like the weak, fragile, scared, empty people they were. Like we are, apart from Jesus. But Jesus goes to the cross, and at the cross... He atones for the sins of people like you and I. In fact, He atones for the sins of any who would turn to Him, even right now this morning, and trust only in Him. Turn to Christ. And when the Spirit dies successfully, victoriously on the cross for our sins, God raises Him from the dead. And, 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 and one of the Gifts. Oh, it's a precious gift. One of the gifts that, the, that, that Jesus 
bequeaths to his people is the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And we would read in Acts the difference that the indwelling Spirit makes in the people of God. A people who just a few days earlier, a couple of months before, ran and hid like weak, fragile, scared, empty people. Now we read in in chapter 4 of Acts, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And And we read in Acts 5, verse 41, after they were beaten for proclaiming Jesus, it says they left rejoicing, and that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. No longer because of what Jesus purchased in giving us his spirit, No longer are God's people weak and fragile and scared and empty. God's people now are strengthened and emboldened and joyful and filled. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word orients us to Jesus. Thank you for how your spirit brings about such a wonderful, precious orientation. Our prayer this morning, Father, is that that you would bring to remembrance by your Spirit the very things that this passage has underscored for us this morning. For that is a wonderful work of your Spirit. Bring it to mind this afternoon and this week, and may we live in light of reality as you have defined it in your Word. Father, we certainly feel weak and fragile and scared and empty. And yet by faith, Father, we claim the gift of Jesus, the gift of His Spirit. And may this week, walking in the Spirit because of what Jesus has done on the cross, may we walk as a strengthened people as an emboldened people, as a joyful people, as a people filled with the gift of your Spirit so that we might see Jesus as glorious. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this.